Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcasts where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. 
Sarah Tunicliffe, Nilfar Akavan, Christina Franz, Gabrielle Ogden, Sarah Vanderkratz, and Brendan Tierney. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making the show. For those of you who don't know, all of the names that I just read are new patrons on Patreon.com, where people go to support this podcast with pledges of a dollar, two dollars, even five dollars a month. At five dollars a month, uh, you get access to this special Patreon poetry feed, where I send you poetry readings twice a month just for donating. So if the show has helped you sleep in any way and you want to be directly a part of making this show, you can go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donate a little bit. Every dollar goes a really, really long way. Thank you. Also, big announcement. If you're hearing this, today I am going to be hosting a live stream Ask Me Anything on Throne, uh, which is a site that lets creators talk to their audience. That's happening tonight. So May 5th today, uh, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be on Throne, and I'll be reading a little bit, and you can come and ask me questions or just even drop by and say, hey, I've heard from a lot of you through email and Instagram and Patreon, and I've heard some pretty amazing stories from a lot of you, but I would love to meet more of you. So if you want to just come and hang out on Throne tonight from 7 to 10, you can go to throne.live slash at Sleepy Otis. I know that might be kind of a confusing link. Um, so it's on our social media too. On Twitter at Sleepy Podcast and on Instagram at Sleepy underscore podcast. Again, I would love for you to join me tonight on Throne at throne.live slash at Sleepy Otis. 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you. Hopefully see you there. Tonight, our book for our 50th episode, which I can't believe we've done 50 episodes. How wild is that? For our 50th episode, I think it's only right that we read The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. Obviously, it's been on a lot of people's minds lately, and it's definitely been on mine. And I just think so much about growing up watching that movie. We did an old VHS of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. We probably watched it hundreds and hundreds of times, my brother and I. So it's a very special place in, I think, a lot of people's memory, definitely mine. So in honor of the rebuilding of Notre Dame, tonight we'll be reading The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. So now's the time for you to get real comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Close your eyes and let me read to you. The Great Hall of the Palace of Justice On January 6, 1482, the people of Paris were awakened by the tumultuous clanging of all the bells in the city. Yet history has kept no memory of this date, for there was nothing notable about the event which set in motion the bells and the citizens of Paris that morning. It was not an attack by the Pickards or the Burgundians, a procession carrying the relics of some saint, an entry of our most dreaded lord, Monsieur the King, nor even a good hanging of thieves. Nor was it the arrival of some foreign ambassador and his train, all decked out in lace and feathers, a common sight in the 15th century. It had been scarcely two days since the latest cavalcade of this kind had paraded through the streets, a delegation of Flemish ambassadors sent to conclude the marriage between the Dauphin and the Marguerite of Flanders. To his great annoyance, Cardinal de Bourbon, in order to please the king, had been obliged to give a gracious reception to that uncouth band of Flemish burgomasters and entertain them in his mansion. The cause of all the commotion on the 6th of January was the double holiday of the Epiphany and the Festival of Fools, 
united since time immemorial. This year, the celebration was to include a bonfire at the Place de Grave, a maypole dance at the Chapelle de Brac, and the performance of a play in the Palace of Justice, all of which had been announced by public proclamation the day before. All shops were to remain closed for the holiday. And early in the morning, the crowd began streaming toward the three designated places, each person having decided on either the bonfire, the maypole, or the play. It is a tribute to the ancient common sense of the people of Paris that the majority of the crowd went to either the bonfire, which was quite seasonable, or the play which was to be formed in the shelter of the great hall of the palace, leaving the poor maypole to shiver beneath the January sky in the cemetery of the Chapelle de Brac. The avenues leading to the Palace of Justice were particularly crowded because it was known that the Flemish ambassadors, who had arrived two days before, were planning to attend the play and the election of the Pope of Fools, which was also to be held in the palace. It was not easy to get into the Great Hall that day, even though it was reputed at the time to be the largest single room in the world. To the spectators looking out of their windows, the square in front of the palace, packed solid with people, presented the appearance of a sea, with five or six streets flowing into it, constantly disgorging a stream of heads. The waves of the sea broke, against the corners of the houses jutting out like promontories into the irregular basin of the square. Shouts, laughter, and the shuffling of thousands of feet blended to produce a mighty uproar. At the doors and windows and on the rooftops swarmed a myriad of sober, honest faces, looking at the palace and the crowd with placid contentment. Many Parisians still find deep satisfaction and watching people who are watching something. Even a wall behind which something is happening is an object of great curiosity to them. Let us now imagine that immense oblong hall inside the palace, illuminated by the pale light of January day, and invaded by a motley and noisy crew pouring in along the walls and swirling around the seven great pillars. In the middle of the hall, High up and against one wall, an enclosed gallery had been erected for the Flemish ambassadors and the other important personages who had been invited to see the play. A private entrance opened into it through one of the windows. At one end of the hall was the famous marble table, so long, wide, and thick that such a slab of marble has never been seen before on earth, as an old document puts it. The play was to be performed on this table, according to custom. It had been set up for that purpose early in the morning. A high wooden platform had been placed on it, the top of which was to serve as the stage. Tapestries hung around the sides, formed a sort of dressing room for the actors underneath. A ladder, undisguisedly propped up against the outside of the platform, connected the dressing room and the stage and served for entrances and exits alike. Every actor, no matter how unexpected his appearance in the play, and every stage effect had to come laboriously up that ladder in full view of the audience. Four sergeants of the bailiff of the palace, whose duty was to keep order among the people at festivals as well as executions, stood at each corner of the huge marble table. The play was not scheduled to begin until the great clock of the palace struck noon, quite late for a theatrical performance, but it had been necessary to arrange the hour to suit the convenience of the ambassadors. Many of the people who had been shivering before the steps of the palace since dawn, and some declared they had spent the whole night huddled in the great doorway in order to make sure of being among the first to enter. The crowd was growing denser at every moment, and like a river overflowing its banks, it soon began to rise up the walls and spill into the cornices, 
the architraves, the window ledges, and all the other projecting features of the architecture. Discomfort, impatience, boredom, the freedom of a day of license, the quarrels constantly breaking out over a sharp elbow of hobnailed shoe, the fatigue of a long wait. All this gave a tone of bitterness to the clamor of the people as they stood squeezed together, jostled, trampled on, and almost smothered. The air was full of complaints and insults against the Flemings, Cardinal de Bourbon, the bailiff of the palace, the sergeants, the cold, the heat, the bad weather, the bishop of Paris, the pope of fools, the pillars, the statues, this closed door, that open window, all to the great amusement of the band of students and lackeys who, scattered throughout the crowd, mixed in their jibes and sarcasm with all that dissatisfaction and thus goaded the general bad humor into becoming even worse. Some of these merry demons had knocked the glass out of one of the windows and were boldly sitting in it. From there, they were able to direct their bantering remarks both inside and outside toward the crowd in the hall and the crowd in the square. From their mimicking gestures, their loud laughter and ribald jokes, they exchanged with their comrades from one end of the hall to the other. It was easy to see that they did not share the boredom and fatigue of the rest of the spectators and that they were able to extract enough entertainment from the scene spread out before their eyes to avoid being impatient for the scheduled performance to begin. My God, there's Jehan Frollo, shouted one of them to a small, blonde young man with a handsome, mischievous face who was clinging to the carved foliage at the top of one of the pillars. How long have you been here? More than four hours, by the devil's mercy, replied Jehan, and I hope the time will be taken off my term in purgatory. Just then, the clock struck noon. Ah, said the whole crowd with satisfaction. The students became silent, and there ensued a noisy shuffling of feet, a general craning of necks and a mighty explosion of coughing as each person stood up and placed himself in the best position to see the stage. Then there was silence. All heads were thrust forward, all mouths were open and all eyes were turned toward the great marble table. But nothing appeared on it. The four sergeants were still there, as stiff and motionless as four painted statues. The crowd looked up at the gallery reserved for the Flemish ambassadors. It was empty, and the door leading into it remained shut. They had been waiting since morning for three things. Noon, the Flemish ambassadors, and the play. Noon was the only one to arrive in time. This was too much. They waited for one, two, three, five minutes, a quarter of an hour. Nothing happened. The gallery and the stage were still deserted. Impatience began to turn into anger. An irritated murmur sprang up from one end of the hall to the other. The play, the play, the play. A storm, which was as yet only rumbling in the distance, began to gather over the crowd. It was Jehan Frollo who made a burst. Let's have the play, and to hell with the Flemings. He yelled at the top of his lungs, twisting around the pillar like a serpent. The crowd applauded. The play, they repeated, and to hell with Flanders. If they won't show us the play, went on the student, I think we ought to hang the bailiff from the palace for entertainment. That's right, shouted the people. Let's start by hanging the sergeants. Loud cheers broke out. The poor sergeants turned pale and looked at one another anxiously. They saw the frail wooden balustrade which separated them from the crowd begin to give way as the people pressed forward in a body. It was a critical moment. At that instant, 
The tapestries forming the dressing room, as we have described before, parted to make way for a man who climbed up on the stage. As if by magic, the sight of him suddenly changed the crowd's anger into curiosity. Silence, silence. Quaking with fear, the man walked unsteadily to the front of the stage with profuse bows which almost became genuflections as he came closer. Meanwhile, calm had been pretty much restored. There remained only the slight murmur which always rises above the silence of a crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, he began, we have the honor to perform before his eminence the Cardinal, a very fine morality play entitled The Wise Decision of Our Lady the Virgin. I shall play the part of Jupiter. His eminence is at this moment accompanying the honorable ambassadors of the Duke of Austria, who are listening to a speech by the rector of the university. As soon as his eminence arrives, we shall begin. It is certain that nothing less than the intervention of Jupiter could have saved the four unfortunate sergeants. His costume was superb, which contributed considerably toward calming the crowd by attracting their attention. He was wearing a brigandine covered with a black velvet, Greek sandals, and a helmet adorned with imitation silver buttons. In his hand, he held a roll of gilded cardboard covered with strips of tinsel, which the experienced eyes of the audience easily recognized as a thunderbolt. Chapter 2 Pierre Gringoire the unanimous admiration and satisfaction produced by his costume was, however, soon dissipated by his words. When he arrived at the unfortunate conclusion, as soon as his eminence arrives, we shall begin. His voice was lost in a thunderous outburst of disapproval. Start it right now. The play, the play right now, shouted the people. Gianfrollo's voice could be heard piercing the uproar like a fife in a village band. Start it right now, he screeched. Down with Jupiter and Cardinal de Bourbon, vociferated the other students, perched in the window. The play, repeated the crowd. Right away, string up the actors and the Cardinal. Poor Jupiter, terror-stricken, Bewildered and pale under his makeup, dropped his thunderbolt, took off his helmet, made a trembling bow and stammered, His eminence, the ambassadors. He stopped, unable to think of anything else to say. He was afraid he would be hanged by the people if he waited and hanged by the cardinal if he did not. Whichever way he looked, he saw the gallows. Fortunately, Someone came forward at this moment to assume responsibility and extricate him from this dilemma. No one had yet noticed the tall, slender man standing against a pillar between the balustrade and the marble table. He had blonde hair, shining eyes, smiling lips, and despite his youth, a number of wrinkles in his forehead and cheeks. His black serge garment was old and threadbare, he stepped up to the marble table and motioned to the wretched actor, but the latter was too panic-stricken to notice him. He stepped closer and said, Jupiter. The actor did not hear him. The tall young man shouted almost in his ear, Michel Jibon. Who is that? exclaimed Jupiter, starting as if he had been suddenly awakened from a deep sleep. It's I. Oh, said Jupiter. Begin right away. Satisfy the crowd. I'll appease the bailiff and he'll appease the cardinal. Jupiter heaved a sigh of relief. Ladies and gentlemen, he shouted to the crowd, who continued to hoot at him. We are going to begin immediately. There was a deafening outburst of applause which lasted for some time after Jupiter had withdrawn behind the tapestry. Meanwhile, the unknown young man 
who had so magically calmed the tempest modestly retired to the shadow of his pillar, where he would no doubt have remained as invisible, motionless, and silent as before, if it had not been for two young ladies who, being in the front rank of his spectators, had overheard his brief conversation with Michel Jaborn Jupiter. Master, said one of them, motioning him to come closer. Hush, Leonardo, said her companion. A pretty, fresh-looking girl, decked out in her Sunday best. You're not supposed to call a layman master. Just call him sir. Sir, said Leonardo. The stranger stepped up the balustrade. What can I do for you ladies? He asked eagerly. Oh, nothing, said Leonardo, embarrassed. My friend here, Gisquette, wanted to talk to you. I did not, exclaimed Gisquette, blushing. Leonardo called you master. I just told her she ought to call you sir instead. The two girls lowered their eyes. The young man, who would have liked nothing better than to strike up a conversation with them, looked at them with a smile. You have nothing to say to me, then? Oh, nothing at all. Sir, said Gisquette abruptly, with the impetuosity of water bursting through a floodgate, or a woman making up her mind. Do you know the soldier who has the part of the Virgin Mary in the play? You mean the part of Jupiter? asked the stranger. Of course, said Leonardo. She's so stupid. Well, do you know Jupiter? Michel Jaborn. Yes, madame. He has a fine beard, said Leonardo. Will it be a good play? asked Gisquette timidly. Very good, answered the stranger without the slightest hesitation. What's it about? said Leonardo. It's called The Wise Decision of Our Lady the Virgin. A morality play, madame. Oh, that's different, said Leonardo. There was a short silence. The stranger broke it. This is a brand new morality play. It's never been performed before. And it's not the same one, said Jusquette. That was given two years ago to the reception of the legate. The one with three pretty girls playing the parts of... Mermaids, finished Leonardo. And all naked, added the young man. Leonardo lowered her eyes modestly. Gisquette looked at her and did likewise. He went on smiling. It was a very pleasant sight, too. But today it's a morality play written especially for the Princess of Flanders. Are you sure it's a good play? asked Gisquette. Of course, he answered. Then he added, with a trace of pompousness, Ladies, I am the author of the play. Really, said the two young girls, full of wonder. Really, answered the poet proudly. My name is Pierre Gringoire. The reader has no doubt noticed that a certain amount of time has elapsed between the moment when Jupiter withdrew behind the tapestry and the moment when the author of the new morality play suddenly revealed himself to naive admiration of Gisquette and Leonardo. It was remarkable to see how the crowd, who had been so tumultuous a few minutes before, were now waiting quietly and humbly. It was one more proof of that eternal truth which is still being proved every day in our theaters, that the best way to make an audience wait is to announce that the performance is about to begin. But Gian Frollo was not asleep at his post. Hey there, Jupiter, Our Lady the Virgin, he suddenly cried out in the midst of peaceful expectation which had succeeded the disturbance. What are you doing there? Telling each other jokes. Start the play or we'll start again. This was enough to set things in motion. An orchestra concealed behind the tapestry began to play, and four actors in heavy makeup and brightly colored costumes climbed up the steep ladder to the stage, ranged themselves in line before the audience, and made a deep bow. 
the music stopped. The play was really about to begin this time. Yet history has kept no memory of this date, for there was nothing notable about the event which set in motion the bells and the citizens of Paris that morning. It was not an attack by the Pickards or the Burgundians, a procession carrying the relics of some saint, an entry of our most dreaded lord, Monsieur the King, nor even a good hanging of thieves. Nor was it the arrival of some foreign ambassador and his train, all decked out in lace and feathers, a common sight in the 15th century. It had been scarcely two days since the latest cavalcade of this kind had paraded through the streets, a delegation of Flemish ambassadors sent to conclude the marriage between the Dauphin and the Marguerite of Flanders. To his great annoyance, Cardinal de Bourbon, in order to please the king, had been obliged to give a gracious reception to that uncouth band of Flemish burgomasters and entertain them in his mansion. The cause of all the commotion on the 6th of January was the double holiday of the Epiphany and the Festival of Fools, united since time immemorial. This year, the celebration was to include a bonfire at the Place de Grave, a maypole dance at the Chapelle de Brac, and the performance of a play in the Palace of Justice, all of which had been announced by public proclamation the day before. All shops were remain closed for the holiday. And early in the morning, the crowd began streaming toward the three designated places, each person having decided on either the bonfire, the maypole, or the play. It is a tribute to the ancient common sense of the people of Paris that the majority of the crowd went to either the bonfire, which was quite seasonable, or the play which was to be formed in the shelter of the great hall of the palace, leaving the poor maypole to shiver beneath the January sky in the cemetery of the Chapelle de Brac. The avenues leading to the Palace of Justice were particularly crowded because it was known that the Flemish ambassadors, who had arrived two days before, were planning to attend the play and the election of the Pope of Fools, which was also to be held in the palace. It was not easy to get into the Great Hall that day, even though it was reputed at the time to be the largest single room in the world. To the spectators looking out of their windows, the square in front of the palace, packed solid with people, presented the appearance of a sea, with five or six streets flowing into it, constantly disgorging a stream of heads. The waves of the sea broke, against the corners of the houses jutting out like promontories into the irregular basin of the square. Shouts, laughter, and the shuffling of thousands of feet blended to produce a mighty uproar. At the doors and windows and on the rooftops swarmed a myriad of sober, honest faces, looking at the palace and the crowd with placid contentment. Many Parisians still find deep satisfaction and watching people who are watching something. Even a wall behind which something is happening is an object of great curiosity to them. Let us now imagine that immense oblong hall inside the palace, illuminated by the pale light of January day, and invaded by a motley, a noisy crew pouring in along the walls and swirling around the seven great pillars. In the middle of the hall, High up and against one wall, an enclosed gallery had been erected for the Flemish ambassadors and the other important personages who had been invited to see the play. A private entrance opened into it through one of the windows. At one end of the hall was the famous marble table, so long, wide, and thick that such a slab of marble has never been seen before on earth, as an old document puts it. The play was to be performed on this table, according to custom. It had been set up for that purpose early in the morning. A high wooden platform had been placed on it, the top of which was to serve as the stage. 
Tapestries hung around the sides, formed a sort of dressing room for the actors underneath. A ladder, undisguisedly propped up against the outside of the platform, connected the dressing room and the stage and served for entrances and exits alike. Every actor, no matter how unexpected his appearance in the play, and every stage effect had to come laboriously up that ladder in full view of the audience. Four sergeants of the bailiff of the palace, whose duty was to keep order among the people at festivals as well as executions, stood at each corner of the huge marble table. The play was not scheduled to begin until the great clock of the palace struck noon, quite late for a theatrical performance, but it had been necessary to arrange the hour to suit the convenience of the ambassadors. Many of the people who had been shivering before the steps of the palace since dawn, and some declared they had spent the whole night huddled in the great doorway in order to make sure of being among the first to enter. The crowd was growing denser at every moment, and like a river overflowing its banks, it soon began to rise at the walls and spill into the cornices, the architraves, the window ledges, and all the other projecting features of the architecture. Discomfort, impatience, boredom, the freedom of a day of license, the quarrels constantly breaking out over a sharp elbow of hobnailed shoe, the fatigue of a long wait. All this gave a tone of bitterness to the clamor of the people as they stood squeezed together, jostled, trampled on, and almost smothered. The air was full of complaints and insults against the Flemings, Cardinal de Bourbon, the bailiff of the palace, the sergeants, the cold, the heat, the bad weather, the bishop of Paris, the pope of fools, the pillars, the statues, this closed door, that open window, all to the great amusement of the band of students and lackeys who, scattered throughout the crowd, mixed in their jibes and sarcasm, with all that dissatisfaction, and thus goaded the general bad humor into becoming even worse. Some of these merry demons had knocked the glass out of one of the windows and were boldly sitting in it. From there, they were able to direct their bantering remarks both inside and outside, toward the crowd in the hall and the crowd in the square. From their mimicking gestures, their loud laughter and ribald jokes. They exchanged with their comrades from one end of the hall to the other. It was easy to see that they did not share the boredom and fatigue of the rest of the spectators and that they were able to extract enough entertainment from the scene spread out before their eyes to avoid being impatient for the scheduled performance to begin. My God, there's Jehan Frollo, shouted one of them to a small, blonde young man with a handsome, mischievous face who was clinging to the carved foliage at the top of one of the pillars. How long have you been here? More than four hours, by the devil's mercy, replied Jehan, and I hope the time will be taken off my term in purgatory. Just then, the clock struck noon. Ah, said the whole crowd with satisfaction. The students became silent, and there ensued a noisy shuffling of feet, a general craning of necks and a mighty explosion of coughing as each person stood up and placed himself in the best position to see the stage. Then there was silence. All heads were thrust forward, all mouths were open, and all eyes were turned toward the great marble table but nothing appeared on it. The four sergeants were still there, as stiff and motionless as four painted statues. The crowd looked up at the gallery reserved for the Flemish ambassadors. It was empty, and the door leading into it remained shut. They had been waiting since morning for three things, noon, the Flemish ambassadors, and the play. Noon was the only one to arrive in time. This was too much. They waited for one, two, three, five minutes, 
A quarter of an hour, nothing happened. The gallery and the stage were still deserted. Impatience began to turn into anger. An irritated murmur sprang up from one end of the hall to the other. The play, the play, the play. The storm, which was as yet only rumbling in the distance, began to gather over the crowd. It was Gian Frollo who made a burst. Let's have the play, and to hell with the Flemings. He yelled at the top of his lungs, twisting around the pillar like a serpent. The crowd applauded. The play, they repeated, and to hell with Flanders. If they won't show us the play, went on the student, I think we ought to hang the bailiff from the palace for entertainment. That's right, shouted the people. Let's start by hanging the surgeons. Loud cheers broke out. The poor sergeants turned pale and looked at one another anxiously. They saw the frail wooden balustrade which separated them from the crowd begin to give way as the people pressed forward in a body. It was a critical moment. At that instant, the tapestries forming the dressing room, as we have described before, parted to make way for a man who climbed upon the stage. As if by magic, the sight of him suddenly changed the crowd's anger into curiosity. Silence, silence. Quaking with fear, the man walked unsteadily to the front of the stage with profuse bows which almost became genuflections as he came closer. Meanwhile, calm had been pretty much restored. There remained only the slight murmur which always rises above the silence of a crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, he began, we have the honor to perform before his eminence, the Cardinal, a very fine morality play entitled The Wise Decision of Our Lady the Virgin. I shall play the part of Jupiter. His eminence is at this moment accompanying the honorable ambassadors of the Duke of Austria, who are listening to a speech by the rector of the university. As soon as his eminence arrives, we shall begin. It is certain that nothing less than the intervention of Jupiter could have saved the four unfortunate sergeants. His costume was superb, which contributed considerably toward calming the crowd by attracting their attention. He was wearing a brigandine covered with a black velvet, Greek sandals, and a helmet adorned with imitation silver buttons. In his hand, he held a roll of gilded cardboard covered with strips of tinsel, which the experienced eyes of the audience easily recognized as a thunderbolt. Chapter 2. Pierre Gringoire The unanimous admiration and satisfaction produced by his costume was, however, soon dissipated by his words. When he arrived at the unfortunate conclusion... As soon as his eminence arrives, we shall begin. His voice was lost in a thunderous outburst of disapproval. Start it right now. The play, the play right now, shouted the people. Gian Frollo's voice could be heard piercing the uproar like a fife in a village band. Start it right now, he screeched. Down with Jupiter and Cardinal de Bourbon, vociferated the other students perched in the window. The play, repeated the crowd. Right away, string up the actors and the cardinal. Poor Jupiter, terror-stricken, bewildered and pale under his makeup, dropped his thunderbolt, took off his helmet, made a trembling bow and stammered, his eminence, the ambassadors. He stopped, unable to think of anything else to say. He was afraid he would be hanged by the people if he waited and hanged by the cardinal if he did not. Whichever way he looked, he saw the gallows. Fortunately, someone came forward at this moment to assume responsibility and extricate him from his dilemma. No one had yet noticed the tall, slender man standing against a pillar between the balustrade and the marble table. 
He had blonde hair, shining eyes, smiling lips, and despite his youth, a number of wrinkles in his forehead and cheeks. His black serge garment was old and threadbare. He stepped up to the marble table and motioned to the wretched actor, but the latter was too panic-stricken to notice him. He stepped closer and said, Jupiter. The actor did not hear him. The tall young man shouted almost in his ear, Michel Duborn. Who is that? exclaimed Jupiter, starting as if he had been suddenly awakened from a deep sleep. It's I. Oh, said Jupiter. Begin right away. Satisfy the crowd. I'll appease the bailiff and he'll appease the cardinal. Jupiter heaved a sigh of relief. Ladies and gentlemen, he shouted to the crowd, who continued to hoot at him. We are going to begin immediately. There was a deafening outburst of applause, which lasted for some time after Jupiter had withdrawn behind the tapestry. Meanwhile, the unknown young man, who had so magically calmed the tempest, modestly retired to the shadow of his pillar, where he would no doubt have remained as invisible, motionless, and silent as before, if it had not been for two young ladies who, being in the front rank of his spectators, had overheard his brief conversation with Michel Jaborn Jupiter. Master, said one of them, motioning him to come closer. Hush, Leonardo, said her companion. A pretty, fresh-looking girl, decked out in her Sunday best. You're not supposed to call a layman master. Just call him sir. Sir, said Leonardo. The stranger stepped off the balustrade. What can I do for you, ladies? He asked eagerly. Oh, nothing, said Leonardo, embarrassed. My friend here, Gisquette, wanted to talk to you. I did not, exclaimed Gisquette, blushing. Leonardo called you master. I just told her she ought to call you sir instead. The two girls lowered their eyes. The young man, who would have liked nothing better than to strike up a conversation with them, looked at them with a smile. You have nothing to say to me, then? Oh, nothing at all. Sir, said Gisquette abruptly, with the impetuosity of water bursting through a floodgate, or a woman making up her mind. Do you know the soldier who has the part of the Virgin Mary in the play? You mean the part of Jupiter, asked the stranger. Of course, said Leonardo. She's so stupid. Well, do you know Jupiter? Michel Duborn. Yes, madame. He has a fine beard, said Leonardo. Will it be a good play? Asked Gisquette timidly. Very good, answered the stranger without the slightest hesitation. What's it about? Said Leonardo. It's called The Wise Decision of Our Lady the Virgin. A morality play, madame. Oh, that's different, said Leonardo. There was a short silence. The stranger broke it. This is a brand new morality play. It's never been performed before. And it's not the same one, said Jessica. That was given two years ago for the reception of the legate. The one with three pretty girls playing the parts of... Mermaids, finished Leonardo, and all naked, added the young man. Leonardo lowered her eyes modestly. Gisquette looked at her, and did likewise. He went on, smiling. It was a very pleasant sight, too. But today it's a morality play, written especially for the Princess of Flanders. Are you sure it's a good play? asked Gisquette. Of course, he answered. Then he added, with a trace of pompousness, Ladies, I am the author of the play. Really, said the two young girls, full of wonder. Really, answered the poet proudly. My name is Pierre Gringoire.
the reader has no doubt noticed, a certain amount of time has elapsed between the moment when Jupiter withdrew behind the tapestry and the moment when the author of the new morality play suddenly revealed himself to naive admiration of Gisquet and Leonardo. It was remarkable to see how the crowd, who had been so tumultuous a few minutes before, were now waiting quietly and humbly. It was one more proof of that eternal truth which is still being proved every day in our theaters. That the best way to make an audience wait is to announce that the performance is about to begin. But Jehan Frollo was not asleep at his post. Hey there, Jupiter, Our Lady the Virgin, he suddenly cried out in the midst of peaceful expectation which had succeeded the disturbance. What are you doing there? Telling each other jokes. Start the play or we'll start again. This was enough to set things in motion. An orchestra concealed behind the tapestry began to play, and four actors in heavy makeup and brightly colored costumes climbed up the steep ladder to the stage, ranged themselves in line before the audience, and made a deep bow. The music stopped. The play was really about to begin this time. 